0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: It was very discouraging because you come out of a great academic experience and professional thinking, all right, I know what to do. I know how this works. I got my business plan. You know, I've got all these other things going for me. I can make it work. Until it doesn't. And I think when it doesn't, at first you say, all right, okay, I can I can deal deal with this challenge because I've got plan B or plan C. But when you get down to R and S in your plans, then that starts to change things a little bit. So that discouragement is there, it is real, and it is one of second guessing yourself and saying, Man, I should have never done this. I should have gone, you know, stayed traditional. I should have taken this job offer that I had at this corporate headquarters and been in that MBA leadership program and look at what money I'd be making. You know, look at the stock options I would have. I mean, there were definitely a lot of those days and nights and I'm like, what the hell am I doing in this?
0: Hey, it's Light Watkins, and you're listening to this week's episode of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that shines a light on the journey of people who would be considered changemakers. And when we hear that word changemaker, we sometimes imagine someone who's predestined to take on some special role in following their inner calling, and we imagine that they're extraordinarily strong and purposeful. But what I found through having dozens of these conversations is that they're just like us. Right, a part of them tried to have a comfortable life and you know, do the conventional thing, and somehow, some way, they got back into a spiritual corner, which forced them to make a choice Are you going to keep doing what everybody else thinks you should do, or are you going to follow your heart? And so, they are the people who said yes to what was in their heart. So, my intention with sharing these stories with you is to inspire you to stay loyal to whatever your inner calling is because that's what the world needs more of and because i know from personal experience how hard it is to do that and how how much inspiration it takes to stay the course especially when it seems like everybody else is playing it safe or going for the money and so this week i'm speaking to an old friend of mine who grew up not far from me down in montgomery alabama in fact we played together as kids And while my life took me in the direction of yoga and meditation, his life trajectory led him into the world of politics. His name is Stephen Reed. And back in 2019, Stephen became the 57th mayor of our hometown, Montgomery, Alabama. And what's significant about that is that Mayor Reed is the first black mayor in a town that was for a brief period of time, the official capital of the Confederacy. Just before the Civil War, it was the place where Dr. King launched the Montgomery bus boycott in the 1950s. In fact, they just commemorated the 65th anniversary of Rosa Parks' arrest. I actually grew up on Rosa Parks Boulevard, just down the street from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where Dr. King began his career as a minister and an activist. And then just up the road from that church is Brian Stevenson's National Memorial. For peace and Justice, which is that new lynching museum that a lot of people have been flocking to Montgomery, Alabama to see. And so Montgomery has a very rich history. And for that reason, Mayor Reed's election made international headlines. And in today's episode, we're going to explore and dissect his unlikely journey of leaving Montgomery for business pursuits, trying to do the traditional thing by becoming a financial analyst his failures as an entrepreneur, and why he decided to become the change he wanted to see by running for office. First as a probate judge, even though he didn't have a law degree, and then later as a mayor. We also talked about something really interesting, and that is why most people think they can't run for public office and how, believe it or not, you're more qualified than you think. It was a fascinating conversation. It's one that I think may inspire you to get more involved in local politics and become the change you want to see in your area of the world. And so without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Mayor Stephen Reed. Mayor Reed, such a pleasure having you on the podcast. You and I are are longtime friends. We're both from the same place. We grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. You're the first person I think I've talked to from Montgomery, Alabama, although Ava DuVernay has roots in Alabama. And we talked about that on our interview. But anyway, I like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. So my first question for you is thinking back to young Stephen, what was your favorite toy or activity?
1: Like, first of all, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation. (laughs) I appreciate the opportunity to come on share with you in your audience just kind of some things about me uh you went way back on on that question uh-huh
0: the way uh, back that. machine
1: man my favorite toy probably was it may have been the old electronic football set you remember that mm, yeah the, uh, the vibrating you, i yeah, played it at your house i used to play right. that at your house <laughs> right <laughs> it, it may have it, was, it, it probably it probably was that until we got the Nintendo. That was probably uh the, the favorite toy for, for a long time, man. Why was that your favorite? I think that was the, the favorite because when you're playing against somebody, there was a competitive nature, there was a strategic nature, and you couldn't control it. So Yeah, could, I, I was gonna say I remember you had no control over what your men were doing. <laughs> All oh, you could line them up as you know the best way you could, but you could not control that vibration and where your guy was gonna go or if he was gonna you know, fall over or whatever. But, you know, growing up and around a lot of football and playing in the backyard and stuff like that, I think you always kind of wanted to play that little coach role. And uh, you had the old Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Mm -hmm. Cowboys, all those teams. So it was fun. And look, I, I think the other part was it was so much, you know, with your friends playing with that. You had to kind of go back in terms of who had the best idea, who was kind of the smartest coach. And so there was a lot mentally to that game as well that I think people don't give it credit for. I mean, I can certainly go through board games and things like that that we played a lot growing up, too. But that was probably my favorite.
0: That's interesting. And both of our families had strong political ties to the city. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the Reed family in Montgomery, Alabama?
1: Well, you know, it starts with my dad coming to Alabama State University, coming here from, you know, really a hard childhood growing up in rural Alabama uh, to a single mother, uh, four of sisters being a, the youngest and the only son. And coming here with not a lot in his pocket, so to speak, you know, having to work, as he would say, to clean toilets and to clean the bathrooms in the dorms for 25 cents an hour. And I think that mindset that he brought from his time growing up in rural Alabama to then going to the military, going to the army, and then coming out to college really forced him into being an activist. And while at Alabama State University, he led the sit-ins to desegregate downtown Montgomery, Alabama as the SGA president at that time. So he was really someone that was active in college, got kicked out of school for doing that when the governor threatened to cut off funding to Alabama State University for those 18 students that were involved in that. And then, you know, from there, he went on to become the head of the Black Teachers Association at the age of 26. And I think that leading such a prominent organization at that time in the mid 60s when there was a lot of tumult going on right after the implementation of integration and that's important brown v board was you know obviously 54 but the implementation of integration of public schools was still happening in most parts of the country and certainly alabama was was no different uh, having to be dragged kicking and screaming to integrate public schools and so with that came jobs came the principals came the teachers and for many you know black people at that time here so you know, that was the way to the middle class. I think that with him being a young leader coming out of that sit-in movement if you will and then getting into lead the Black Teachers Organization, there was a fiery spirit of activism that existed that led him to then get into elected politics. And my dad was chosen by some of the elders to lead a group called the Alabama Democratic Conference. This Organization, grassroots organization, which was and still remains the only statewide political black organization in in Alabama and in, in the southeast, was charged with to elect black people, men and women to various political offices. And because of his vast network with educators, he was able to take that network and turn it into political power and organizing. So it kind of grew from there, and so my parents certainly understood, I think, what needed to be done. I don't think they understood kind of what they were doing at the time. My mom was an administrator in higher ed, and she was introduced to my dad by your grandfather, Dr. Levi Watkins. And so through the Alabama Democratic Conference and through then the merger from the Alabama State Teachers Association, which was a black teachers group here, merging with the Alabama Education Association, which was the white organization, there formed a biracial political coalition that in this state probably has never been seen and and has not been put together since of educators, Mm -hmm. both black and white, fighting for public schools and fighting for education that led to a lot of political advancement. And so my father kind of utilized that. Now merge organization black and white to channel resources, channel the talent into political activism, and so he brought a lot of lawsuits for redistricting uh to make sure there were blacks that were represented on the board of registrars. We've seen a lot of stuff recently here about the elections. The board of registrars was was always in charge and still is with who's on the voting so at that time again, this is late 60s and 70s, there still weren't any, there were very few Blacks that were allowed to monitor the voting rolls, which determined who had the opportunity to vote. And so the activism led to political influence through legal challenge and through political change. And I think kind of bringing that home to Montgomery, my father then challenged leadership here along with others to move to a mayor council form of government and when they did that in 1975 initially there were just two black districts drawn for the city of Montgomery and even though the city was around you know 40 percent at least voting age population and so my father you know took him to court and said well he thought there ought to be four districts drawn at that time and there was a court battle between the city of Montgomery and The plaintiffs, the class action lawsuit, and the lawsuit my father filed ended up prevailing because they could prove that Blacks were not being represented, could not be represented with just two majority Black councilmen. And so we got four out of nine seats. We still have four out of nine seats after 40 plus years. And so my father ran in 1975 and won to be one of four Black city councilmen at that time in the city of Montgomery And served until 1999, so served 24 years and remained uh, as chair of the Alabama Democratic Conference, the Black Caucus of the Democratic Party, for over 40 years and was vice chair for minority affairs for about 20 of those years, along with serving as associate executive secretary, which was the second in charge of the Alabama Education Association, which was probably the most powerful teachers' union in the country at the state level politically.
0: You said that it wasn't until 75 that Montgomery was being governed by a, a mayor council organization. What was the arrangement before that?
1: We had a commission form of government, much like Birmingham did when people think of Bull Connor and, and some of those folks. We had a commission form of government. So you had three commissioners that mm-hmm. made the decisions and, and a mayor at that time.
0: Were the commissioners elected or were they appointed or how, how did they?
1: They were elected, just not by everybody.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then just going back a little bit with your dad. Do I remember it correctly that something happened to your dad's dad?
1: Oh, yeah. So my dad's dad was I mean was was killed when he was 9 years old. So he was shot and killed in Pittsburgh there, you know, looking for work, living in the south, family back in Alabama, but you know, looking for work in the in the steel mills of Pittsburgh at that time.
0: At 9 years old.
1: Yeah, my dad was 9.
0: Okay. Did you ever talk about that with you guys?
1: Not a lot. Not a lot. You know, I think for him, the pain of that probably is, is still there, as well as the the, the memory of his dad is, is not very much because they're not pictures that we have now where we take photos of everything every, every other hour. But I think that because his dad was often trying to find work and do things along those lines, the connection is not there, not not like it it is for his mom, so when he talks about my paternal grandmother, there you know memories and stories galore much different than what he has for his father
0: and you have a picture of your dad sitting next to Martin Luther King in the Maggie Street Church, yeah, obviously, you grew up around a lot of history, and you know your dad was doing all of this on the city council when you were born. How much of that was being talked about in your house growing
1: up? Oh, well, a good bit. You know, I, I tell people, you know, all the time that, I mean, I, I knew about, you know, movers and shakers, mayors, activists, pastors, business people, probably as much as people may talk about entertainers or things that are more common today. That that was the, the conversation around our table. My father had been chosen by Dr. King in 1960 to be one of the students to help start SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because, again, his leadership at Alabama State as a student leader, he had been the Supreme Court Justice on the college Supreme Court. So he had been active his whole collegiate career, much different than mine. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) we'll touch on that. But he was, you know, very active and I think sought out some of those positions. And so Dr. King, because of his relationship with me and the faculty members from the bus boycott and and moving forward as his role as pastor of Dex Avenue Baptist Church, knew kind of the the, the presidents and knew the leadership there at ASU and asked this this young student leader named Joe Reed to go to Raleigh to meet with other student leaders to start the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Obviously, John Lewis was a part of that and, and many others. So for us around the dinner table, those discussions were always being had about, you know, just casually. You know, it wasn't, you know, here's a a lesson ding-ding. It was just kind of casually talking about something that may be in the newspaper or something we may have been reading about or reporting about in our history book where he would correct it and say, No, that's not right. That's not the full story. That's a watered-down version. And then it might lead into a discussion, or it may be Somebody that was coming in town and coming through Montgomery, going somewhere that would stop by, and I didn't know who Andrew Young was or you know some of those folks. Those type things also kind of stood out as well to say, "Hey, here he's the mayor of Atlanta right now." But you know, I knew him when because his wife is from Perry County. My mom Molly is from Perry County, so my dad would make a connection there along with. Mrs. King. And so there would be these kind of familiar connections, much like we would probably make now about how we know people through alma maters or who's from what city or what side of the city and that sort of thing. And so the the conversations really were for us about applying it to our own circumstance and applying it to our own situation so that we would understand that it's not just this little snippet of a quote or a picture to understand there was much more to it i didn't appreciate that at the time i'll be the first to tell you to me it was you know talking about old people and folks that you know uh, weren't weren't cool and, and weren't relevant to, to what mattered to me going to school the next day or going to hang out with friends you know over the weekend mm-hmm. that, that wasn't who I wanted to hear about.
0: You're like, um, is LL Cool J involved? Is Run DMC involved? Okay, well, right. I, I need to go back to my room. I don't care. Where <laughs> exactly. it'll be Rosa Parks. Right, <laughs> that's right,
1: right. You know, so if it wasn't on that that Write On magazine with the debarges and yeah. <laughs> uh, you know Janet Jackson and, and and Whitney Houston, some of those people was like, okay, whatever.
0: So you were a big fan of football, obviously. What did you see for yourself, like, in the future?
1: I think for a long time, I thought as a I was going Yeah, as a kid. Yeah, I thought I was going to play football. My dad was like, you're not going to play football. <laughs> it's like, you know, what, what's your backup plan? So, you know, what? So I was like, well, if not, I was like, you know, I'll be a, you know, I want to run a team. You know, I want to be a coach or and, and, and run a team. And. That I think kind of appealed to him because that was leadership, a leadership position and something that he saw. But even then, we had not had Art Shell to be the first black coach in the NFL. So it was like, all right, well, if you're gonna be if you're gonna break a barrier, then you need to understand the story of Jackie Robinson. You need to learn about Bill Russell. You need to understand who Frank Robinson is. And it, you know, the historic figures of, of his day, you know, in, in sports and stuff like that. And he was like, You need to understand, you know, who those guys are and kind of what they went through and how they had to prepare. And I think if there was anything that was, you know, shared with us, it, it was the thought that you have to be twice as good to be equal. If there's one thing that I can take away from all of the discussion, you are always going to be twice as good to be equal in this world, being black. And you just need to know that. So in your sports and your, whatever approach it is, that's what you need to do. And that even went to the football field, right? That went to even, Quarterbacks. You know, we take it for granted now, but, you know, there were only a handful of black quarterbacks. And, you know, my dad and uncles to name the Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliams and the Doug Williams. I mean, it was just, you know, a handful of those guys versus the, you know, what we have right now. So his point was, hey, even if you think you're going to be a athlete, then have a backup plan and just understand what you're going to have to go through preparation-wise, before you get on the field to prove yourself in order to succeed. And I really thought, even outside of, of that, that I would be, do something in sports, that I would literally be a GM. And I did kind of change my, my thought when part by the time I got to high school that I was like, well, I want to be a GM because I do see how Black athletes you know, get mistreated. You know, I do see how there aren't enough Black coaches on the sideline those things were apparent to me then. And it was like, all right, well, if I'm the GM, I know sports well enough and to know talent and to know smarts, then I can kind of level the playing field. And maybe that'll be a space where I can be a trailblazer.
0: It's interesting because Montgomery is a place where, you know, obviously it's the cradle of the Confederacy and you attended a high school called Jefferson Davis high school, Mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. <laughs> and there's Robert E. Lee High School, who was a Confederate general. And I went to Sidney Lanier High School, and I did a little research, and I think he was some sort of Civil War poet. And the other high school is was George Washington Carver, which is probably the only woke high school name now. But I didn't think too much about that back in those days. You know, you just went to school. You didn't really think about what the names meant or anything like that that we do today today. And I'm just curious, being in such a politically aware family, was that something that was spoken about at all?
1: Not then. It's interesting. And I remember getting to college and talking to you know, classmates about that. It just wasn't. And it was interesting because, you know, we go to Detroit or we go to Chicago and uh, to visit family, visit cousins. And they went to Whitney Young. They went to Percy mm. Julian. You know, they went to Dunbar. You know, they went to all these high school schools. Wrote Paul Robeson, you know, they went to all these high schools and literally that was the education that I got going, you know, to visit family who had moved north. You know, most of my parents, siblings, all my mom's from is one of 10 and my dad is, is, is one of five. They all moved north. So it was a one of four. They all moved north. And so it was one of those things that did not stand out to me. Until a cousin or someone would bring it up at that time for us, you know, Jeff Davis was JD. That's mm-hmm. just what we called it. You know, it was. It could have been it could have been Jeff Dunn. It could have been Jackson Dunaway. Whatever <laughs> you know, it was JD. You know, and and that's that's what it was. But I do find it ironic that you know you had these sympathizers that felt so strongly about that then that it continued. And I, as I remind people, and I just said this before our Chamber of Commerce like two days ago, I said, you know, when people called me after I won my election, they, didn't, they weren't talking about the Confederacy. They were talking about the bus boycott because we're mm. going to be celebrating the 65th anniversary of that this year uh, in just two weeks, really. And I said, people around the world were referring to the bus boycott. They didn't refer to the Confederacy. And my point was, to the group that we've held on to this notion around the Confederacy and this false, you know, narrative around it in a lot of ways, and I said Montgomery was only the capital for three and a half months. I'm like, so all of our stuff we say birthplace of the Confederacy. I said they didn't even stick around here for six months. They got the <laughs> hell out of here and went to Richmond, Virginia, you know. And I'm like, but but we hold on to what was the birthplace, and I've said to you know a lot of. People are very, what word do I want to use? I've said it in a word that is pointed to bring up, well, what else do you claim that you only saw one third of the way through? And I said, so you're talking about a birth. Then a birth is nine months. The Confederacy was here for three and a half months. Mm-hmm. So You don't claim anything that that you didn't see all the way through. But for some reason, people here did for centuries. And... Going to those schools, the names weren't so much the issue as much as the culture was. In my house, it was the culture around how are the teachers treating Black students? How are the Black teachers being treated by the white principal? You know, what's the interaction there between, you know, white students and Black students? It was more along those lines than it was the name itself. You played
0: football at JD?
1: Yeah.
0: And then you eventually... I'm all man. I was <laughs> what position Seriously. you
1: play? I played safety at JD, and then and then I played a cornerback at Morehouse. So
0: okay,
1: I was serious about that thing. Now and you that's, and I that's, listen. That's when you were out, you know, as a drum major. I didn't realize that the drum majors were cooler than the football players back then.
0: <laughs> you and I both have brothers, older brothers, who attended Morehouse College in Atlanta. Which yeah. is the alma mater of Martin Luther King and historically black college. I decided I didn't want to go to Morehouse because my brother was there and I didn't okay. want to be in his shadow anymore. But you chose to go to Morehouse even yeah. though Joey was there. What was talk, talk to me about? Talk to me about that decision.
1: Yeah, you know, I, listen and shout, shout out to your alma mater, HU. I mean, I, I think that <laughs> Howard has really not that it never was, but it has certainly reestablished its presence as the Mecca. You know, when I think about the Anthony Andersons and Taraji P. Henson, what's happening in Hollywood, people like yourself, political leaders, new generation of folks, whether it's Kasim Reed and others, certainly now the vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, now is taking not just a historic footnote for Black people, but just women overall and being the mm-hmm. first woman elected. You know, I think that Tanahesse Coates, you know, writing very powerful statements over the last 10 years or so. It, it, it's, it's really uh deep. You know, and I think for me at that time, Morehouse was in a similar place where because we had you know Spike Lee, you had a lot of corporate leaders that that were making you know strong statements about not just race in America, but challenging. The systems academically, you had these powerful theologians and pastors who were preaching black liberation theology across the across the country, you know, just a lot of strong voices. You had a Harold Ellis in the NBA of, you know, a guy who goes to Morehouse and then goes on to play for the Clippers and the Knicks. You know, so you you have for what I would say, cultural people that you could point to. And I think that for me, I was probably more drawn to Atlanta as much as I was anything else. It's coming again a few years after the school days. You're, you're, you're still in the middle of a different world and, and uh, those type of shows that Cosby Family World were, were, were doing. You know, so it put Black Colleges in, in a real positive light and it brought it into your home. And I think for me, I wanted to be far enough away from home where my folks couldn't just kind of come up and, and show up but I didn't want to be too far away from home that I was in a, a D.C. or Hampton and other places that I look. I, I still kind of want to be able to move around. And I think ultimately I probably, you know, just wanted to be in a southern environment as well. Mm. And with Atlanta being, you know, kind of the the, the hot city, if you will, in, in the early 90s, it was real hard to drive through Atlanta on the way to D.C. for me, when there was so much activity and, and so much kind of what I thought was a positive energy, very different than Montgomery, very different than Alabama, period, happening there. And So I think that's kind of what what took me to that place. And and I got a funny story, if, if I can. Yeah, know, go for it. You know, my brother didn't want to go to Morehouse. My brother wanted to go to University of Alabama. And so my dad was like, well, you're going to go to a HBCU. And, you know, you going go to a black college. What's wrong with a black college? So, you know, that's kind of where a lot of our friends were going at, at that time. And Joe didn't want to go. So my dad was like, all right, I'm going to take you all on a tour. You know, FAMU, Morehouse, you know, the Virginia schools, Hampton, all those. And we'll get up to Howard. Well, long story short, as we get up there, you know, my brothers kind of push it back on it. And my dad said something to him that led to the statement that, You know, basically, if Morehouse was good enough for Martin Luther King, it's good enough for you. (laughs) So it was one of those things where it's still that was that reference point back to who he my dad would say Martin. So to Martin, it was that reference point to, hey, this college produced this guy. Howard and all these other HBCUs produced these other leaders. It's good enough. So, you know, don't you. Uh, look down your nose because you aren't familiar with it. And once we got up there, there was a gentleman who had been a longtime friend of my father's, an activist in civil rights who kind of led us around Morehouse. And he just laid the the, the law down in terms of why he thought that Morehouse itself was the preeminent place for Black men to come and be educated. And Mm. his thing was, hey, if you want to go somewhere else, average, then you can go to University of Alabama. But if you want to go somewhere where you're gonna be pushed and where you're gonna be expected to be better than the rest, regardless of what room you're in and what city you're in, or what industry you choose, then you need to come here. And he just laid it down and I think that not only sold my brother at that time, but I think it probably sold me and I was maybe in junior high school. All that I think kind of led me, led me there.
0: For those people who don't know, Morehouse it's seen as in the HBCU community, it's it's seen as a school that grooms young black men for leadership positions. Like that's what you guys are basically known for. Just like how University of Alabama produces football players that play in the NFL, Morehouse produces Morehouse men who go on to become social activists and business leaders and all kinds of leaders in every spectrum. So from your experience there, what are some of the tenets that you guys were being indoctrinated with?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, it, that's important because I tell people who haven't been, whether be they male or female, regardless of their race. I said, you know, Morehouse is unlike any institution. I said, I think probably because of its size and because of the culture, it's hard to duplicate that. And I think that the tenets that we were being indoctrinated with were one, a sense of purpose, obviously a sense of, of, of place and understanding who we were as a person, as a black man individually in this larger scope. And what, what you get at at Morehouse in particular at that time, and, and I think it's, it's held true, was a constant challenge to not only push yourself beyond your limitations, if you will, or whatever you may think your limits are, but to push the community and the culture beyond that. And whatever it is, you know, we had guys who've gone into fashion, guys who've gone into the arts and theater, guys, whatever it is, it, it was to you be the, the very best and understand that there's an expectation that you will be. And the expectation is that you not just will be the best, but that you will impact your community beyond yourself. And you will then teach and bring somebody else with you. And you understand the challenge of going to work at a hedge fund. You understand the challenge of going to work at a Fortune 100 company, or going to attain a PhD from an elite school, or going into medicine, going into entrepreneurship. Understanding all of those challenges, I think the tens were and still are, you were expected to succeed anyway in the face of that. Because others before you have, and because we are preparing you and training you, if you will, for that environment, for that competition that will exist wherever you are. And so it is not enough for you to just think that you could look the part or even sound the part. You have to be the part. And that has to be very, very intentional in terms of whatever it is that you do. So that when you go out into the world, so to speak, you are uplifted and you are confident that whatever challenge comes before you, it is one that you can meet and it's one that you can surpass all expectations.
0: You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. How are you defining success at that time in your life? as you were about to leave Morehouse? Because you and I, again, we came up around the same time. And I know yeah. for me, I was interviewing at Goldman Sachs. I was thinking yeah. about becoming a banker and making money and all that. So I have my own idea of what success looked like. That's yeah. very different from where it is right now. So yeah. I'm just curious, what was yours at that time when you're 20, 21 years old?
1: It was very much the same. It was to compete and to break the glass ceilings and to go to the very best companies in schools, and to show what I, thereby we, could do as Black men. I can compete with you athletically, great, but I can compete with you mentally as well, and I can beat you in both of those spaces. So it was to go in, and for me, by the time I got toward the end of my college career, it was about money. It was about the job, the company, the position and getting a a foot in the door to create wealth. I had kind of gotten to that point. I was not in a political space whatsoever. And I had totally pushed that aside because I was just thinking, well, you know, we got to make money. And I want to make money not only for myself, but I want to make money so I can do other things because I started to understand the capitalism a lot more. And I started to understand a, a America' love for that. And I thought that that was kind of the, next step for me was to then be a a corporate CEO and was to be a CEO or C-suite exec in a major company. So that was going to be my way of impacting communities and impacting the world was to bring my mindset through business and through corporate America and to change corporate America to do more and to do better by people in particular, black and brown folks. And so when I left College, after being, you know, having those four years, I was a business administration major. I'd interned at different companies. And so I went in thinking, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to be this black enterprise, you know, most powerful executive. And this is what I'm going to do through with these resources, with this brand, with this company. This is what I'm going to do. So I know I need to start my career in this type of position, in this type of management training program, and then I'm going to go on and go get my MBA, and then I'll come back and, and do the, the whole senior management thing, move around and build my career so that, one, I can make money, so I can give back, I can write checks, I don't have to go beg other people for theirs, I can you know kind of control my own destiny financially, but also I can invest in communities and I can kind of right some, some wrongs. That had been done over previous decades.
0: That sounds very different from your dad's trajectory. Did he have any thoughts about that game plan? Had you discussed it with him?
1: Well, yeah, I think that you know he his thing was I was going to major in political science, kind of because he majored in political science. I ended up majoring in business. (laughs) He was like, "You probably want to major in something else because you know political science jobs aren't that easy. Not a you know a whole lot you can do with that." So. You might want to think about business, and I think he realized where our generations of opportunities were versus his, and I think that he thought that that was something to look into because I was talking about starting businesses, leading businesses, uh, I was very interested in that, and I think he was exposed to things that probably at that point in his career, that he maybe even saw some of may have seen some of the limitations the political process, but that was the path he had chosen. That was the path that he had kind of crafted to be an expert in and had certainly done very well in influencing outcomes. I just told him, I said, look, you know, we got a lot of black elected officials. We got a lot of black mayors. The cities aren't doing good. Black folks aren't doing as well as we'd like. I think we got to make money. We don't have enough black millionaires. We don't have enough black people who can create and sustain our own economies in a way that allow us to do things directly that we need to do. And I think that with that mindset, he understood kind of that my head was in a different place of creating change than his. It it wasn't in politics at that time. It was in, it was through business. And so one of the things that he shared with me was he said, you know what? I think that's going to be your generation's challenge. You know, our generation's challenge was to change The political process and to bring about more equality through that. Your generation's challenge may may be to bring out more economic change and more change through that lens that impacts people who have been left behind and left out. So he definitely understood it and was encouraging uh, of that.
0: My dad used to say, just as a general rule of thumb, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And he didn't come up with that, but that's what he would say a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, as you were moving into adult life, you know, getting a job, was there any philosophy that you recall from your dad that you kind of carried with you?
1: Ain't nobody going to build you a temple and make you high priest. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) That ain't nobody going to build something and then put you at the top of it. You want to build and be at the top, you better do it yourself. Okay. So that kind of started going to the entrepreneurial part. Right. And it was, you know, if you expect somebody to, to, to do all this work and, and, and build this temple of, of success and make you the person, then good luck. You better build your own and, and you better, you know, kind of get your own. So his was, was well, certainly that one jumps out, you know, at me. And I think the other thing was just understanding the, importance if you will of doing the small things and hmm. i think putting the work in and one of the other things that he would say is uh, the average work week is is 40 hours that's gonna give you average return so if you want more return then you have to put in more than 40 hours hmm. and his thing was again just that work ethic of you're not going to get there without some sacrifice, hmm. not and be successful and not as be as someone that, that stands out. And he would use for me, you know, different analogies, whether that was again, you know, the political leaders or if it was the athletes. And his point was, you know, when you see him at the game, you haven't heard Hank Aaron talk about how many swings he's taking at batting practice. You're just talking about the home runs. And he would just kind of, Use some of those ploys as a way to, to say that if you want an above average type of impact, lifestyle, whatever it may be, you're going to have to do above average type things in order to get it.
0: So then you landed at American Airlines. You were a financial analyst. You've got all this wisdom with you. I'm assuming you're applying this wisdom. You're working as hard as you can. It's not your temple, so you're not going to be the high priest anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) What was your takeaway from those three years or four years of working as an analyst? First job out of college.
1: It was a great experience. It was an opportunity to go from this HBCU and and all the things that it prepared us for. To right into corporate America, right into the heart of it—a global, worldwide firm where the person next to me is from India, person a couple of cubicles over from me was from Great Britain. Then you had a couple of people right there from Fort Worth, Texas. You know, just very interesting, dynamic. My first manager was a MIT grad. You know, different Asian guy. All, all these different dynamics. You know, a lot of racial diversity, and and I still reference that. To this day, that that made a big impact on me because of the type of culture that I went into. And it was a very competitive culture. It was a very hard-driving culture. That's where I learned that that the 8 to 5 thing didn't really apply.
0: That's to see who's going to be average. That's right. 8 to 5 is to see who's going to be average.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it taught me a lot about teamwork. It taught me a lot about big company thinking and leading organizing at at that level, the things that really matter corporately, so to speak. And it was a great training ground for me because I met so many smart, talented people from all over the country who went to some of the the best schools. And those that were just hard workers who went to the local schools. I mean, it was a great, great kind of mix of people pushing forward for their promotion, the, the success of the company. So you start to get a a, a sense of kind of group think and the mindset, how organizational culture is built, all the soft things as well as the hard things that you would expect from that type of program.
0: Was there anything about it that you just couldn't get your head around?
1: Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I left to do, to do management consulting. So, you know, I, I think I got frustrated with, with the lack of opportunity after what I would say was my initial training period and not being able to move around as much and see different sides of the company to find out exactly what my real skill set was. So I went in as a financial analyst in the market performance department and realized very quickly that I was not near as numbers driven as most of the other people who were in that space. I was like, look, numbers are a part of what I do. I can certainly do them. I'm comfortable, but it's not all of what I do. So, if you're just gonna stick me in a cubicle for 12 hours for me to crunch numbers and, and spit out spreadsheets, that ain't what I'm trying to do. Hmm. And it was like, I think I can, you know, give you, I can add more value by using some of my other talents than just there. And I think trying to get out of that box once you were put in it initially was hard and frustrating. And that's why ultimately I left because I wasn't able to, to be promoted to other positions that would give me different side of the company or really a, a, a professional of the profession at all. Because even when I looked outside, it was well, we want you to be financial analysts, And I was like, again, I'm not leaving one place to do, you know, 70 hour work weeks or whatever in a cubicle crunching numbers for another, you know, right. i I've got more to offer than that.
0: Yeah, you couldn't be the high priest no. <laughs> at a company. You're <laughs> not you going to do it. that. <laughs> so you ended up, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit. You ended up yeah. getting your MBA and then you moved back to Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. Which is interesting because I don't, I think you and I, you know, we would be in occasional touch and I don't think either one of us talked about moving back to Montgomery, Alabama anytime no. soon. <laughs> but you moved back and you went and you became an entrepreneur. you went into a franchise business with a roly Poly sandwich shop. My brother worked at your shop. I heard you in an interview recently you talked about how the case studies in b school are very different from real world entrepreneurial experience. Can you talk a little bit about about your experience uh, with that?
1: Yeah, no question. Well one, I didn't expect to come back here from business school, so you know again, you have your plan and, and God has a different plan, obviously. I didn't expect to come back here. I thought that I would probably go back to Atlanta, maybe Dallas, and kind of do my entrepreneurial stuff there. But I had a mentor who suggested, hey, you know, you may want to go back and get off the ground where you've got some relationships, where you can raise some money, and you can get things going a little quicker. You know, i would certainly seen the success of your brother, Donald, who was a couple years ahead of me at, at Morehouse, who was doing very successful things here, entrepreneurship-wise. And that's where my mindset was, no doubt. At that time, leaving business school, I just did not want to go back to do the corporate thing. I wanted to do my own and start to, again, build my own high temple. So the thought was to invest in franchises to scale them and sell them. It was not really for me to stay in that. It was to get my feet on the ground, get an understanding of the retail and, and restaurant business, scale it, use mine experience, if you will, financial and otherwise, to then acquire other businesses and then to sell and move up and you know maybe do some private equity stuff at some point, or maybe go back and, and lead a restaurant group, whether that was Brinkers or some of the other larger restaurant groups, Darden and others. But that was kind of my long-term thought of why I would get involved in the food space initially. So coming back here, the thought was, you know, I could get some money and get off the ground quicker than maybe I could in some other places. And I said, you know, kind of to my classmates and folks at my alma mater for business school, Vanderbilt, that it wasn't as easy for black students to get access to that capital. We didn't know how to do that. I certainly didn't. And talking to other classmates, they didn't either. So I had to kind of go a non-traditional route to do that. So getting in that taught me a lot about being on the ground because the case studies were designed or, were, you know, show you one thing, but obviously they didn't show you the reality of the hard work that was necessary to run your own small business. The people, the payroll, the product, all the, the pieces that we would talk about, you know, a lot, you know, goes into that. And for us, we thought we were getting on the, on the ground floor of what would be a burgeoning brand, much like Panera Bread is now. I don't know if you guys have that there, or Chipotle or something like that. And so our thought was, in talking to the owners, that they wanted to expand the business, grow the brand. It was a healthy food business. We're in Montgomery, Alabama, not exactly the, the healthiest eating city that exists. And so you know, we thought we had a niche and we thought we had a growing brand that would really put us at a different scale, you know, three to five years out. And you, you come to realize that you can't control the ownership and, and, and changes they may have because of economic challenges or just philosophical differences. And those are things that you don't see in the case study. Those are things that you can't anticipate in the case study versus kind of where we are right now. Uh, I'm sorry, where we were then and why we had to pivot from that after a few years.
0: How did it all shake out with the roly-poly thing?
1: What I had to make a decision on as managing partner was kind of a timeline as it relates to profitability. And I did not see the ability for us to remain profitable without expanding our locations. And we were having challenges in two areas. One was access to, to capital to stand up other locations to help us with economies of scale. And the other part was people and management. And it was something that I wanted to pull back from. And, you know, looking back in hindsight, that may have been, that probably was premature. Because, again, to establish the culture, to establish the operational excellence that you're looking for, often takes the the founder of any organization, being it IT firm, it can be a law firm, whatever it may be, medical practice, whatever it may be, it takes typically around five years or so. You have to be willing to put that in. And that was something I just didn't calculate for myself, you know, financially and things along those lines. Certainly, looking at our success and looking at some of the issues we were having with the ownership of the larger company presented a challenge that I didn't see us being able to be a successful you know, after about two or three years in, uh, as I had imagined before I got involved in the business. And so what we decided to do was I would exit out to try to craft a a longer and long-term and broader strategy with the expectation that maybe that would allow us to grow the business. But if we were not able to grow the business, then I made the decision that after four years or so, if I didn't see an upside, I would move myself from the business and I would get out. And that's where I got to.
0: Dealing with all of the ups and downs of of being an entrepreneur. Did you have a healthy relationship with the idea of loss and failure? How did you process that journey?
1: Man, no, it was discouraging. You know, I mean, I was making less than $30,000. I was making about $27,000 after going to business school. Now, again, nobody, nobody <laughs> tells you that part in the case study. Right. Uh, nobody tells you how, how much, you know, money you can't make when you're just trying to get by. And you're trying to keep your lights on and keep your cost of goods at a certain level and keep your company functional. You miss that part. So it was very discouraging because you come out of a great academic experience and professional thinking, all right, I know what to do. I know how this works. I got my business plan. I've got all these other things going for me. I can make it work until it doesn't. And I think when it doesn't, you, at first, you say, all right, okay, I can I can deal, deal with this challenge because I've got plan B or plan C. But when you get down to R&S <laughs> in your plans, then that starts to change things a little bit. So that discouragement is there. It is real. And it is one of second-guessing yourself and saying, man, I should have never done this. I should have gone, you know, stayed traditional. I should have taken this job offer that I had at this corporate headquarters and been in that MBA leadership program and look at what money I'd be making. You know, look at the stock options I would have. I mean, there were definitely a lot of those days and nights. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing in this? Like, th- this is why I went to business school to see these type of numbers and not be able to, to, you know, have enough people to show up on a different shift. You know, just simple stuff. You know, <laughs> and I get enough people here for, for, for this shift. What was the low point? Did you ever have to get back in there yourself and cut up Oh, all the time. Yeah. The, all, all, I did that all the time. Listen, I, I cleaned the bathrooms. I prepped food. I was the cashier, the the cook, all of those and the delivery driver, all of those things. I wore all the hats. I mean, I did all that stuff. So listen, the the, the I imagine the, the, somebody you went to business school with ordering a Rolly Bowl, you you showing up with their sandwiches <laughs> t-shirt hat and all right t-shirt hat and like all. steven like, what happened right oh my god look how far you've fallen <laughs>
0: yeah. oh my god
1: you're, you're, you're devaluing the degree the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. i'm like yeah i probably i probably am Did your dad,
0: was he pretty hands off in your life at this point or was he giving you, was there any I told you so energy? Was he giving you any any advice? Because he's an entrepreneur himself. He's got a bunch of real estate and stuff and he seems to be really conservative
1: in that regard. Yeah, Yeah, no, he was he was supportive. You know, he was certainly hands off and was supportive in it. And I think, you know, was open to the conversation about loss of confidence and direction and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But i think very, you know, pragmatic all at the same time. It wasn't like, hey, just keep, you know, running your head into that brick wall. You know, his point was, hey, you have to look at how is this working? Is this not a market not ready for what you're doing yet? Is it you? Are you part of the problem? Is it your style? Is it your approach to this? It needs to be changed. You also have to look at it financially. How much money, you know, do you have? How much credit card debt do you want to go into? A lot is what I went into, you know, still have some of that. So, you know, his thing was, you know, you have to look at this and kind of remove the ego, remove the pride in the sense that you want to do it and you want to be successful and you're out to prove that you can be a person who doesn't just have to go into a carved out pathway for MBAs, but that you want to create this wealth and you want to impact your community and be a sponsor and be someone who gives back and creates jobs and serves as an example. But maybe it's not in this, maybe it's in something else. And you have to know when to cut the cord, so to speak, and say, you know what? I'm going to cut my losses right here and acknowledge that this did not work out. It was a failure. And, but I'm not a failure, but this venture was, and I'm going to hit the reset button and start again. Do you remember that day when you made that decision? Yeah, I remember it. I remember where I was sitting, sitting out and, my office at the time. And it would have been about four months of just, you know, negative growth. And just looking at the the cash we had on hand and thinking about, again, the stuff I put on credit card and the the money that had been borrowed and all that. And I just, you know, kind of thought to myself, all right, this just is not working. We're not able to maintain quality control in the store and the restaurant. We're not able to get the type of people that we need to make us successful, the way we can expand. Excuse me, and oh, by the way, the things that we thought would work marketing-wise, operationally, things we've changed has not produced the type of results we want. And I just have to acknowledge that this isn't the place and this is not the time for me to be successful in this arena.
0: So what made you get into lobbying?
1: I got into lobbying for a couple of reasons. So one, because it was something that I thought I could do in my sleep. And when I became aware of some of the opportunities politically, I was like, man, this is this is easy. I mean, this is pharmaceutical sales, zero, zero, zero. This isn't even one on one. Hey, this is hundred (laughs) level courses. This is easy. I can do this. And you're telling me that corporations are paying, you know, firms what amount? So when I started to hear that, it was all right. Keep in mind, I'm coming out of the entrepreneurial piece, not being successful. A lot of debt. A lot of looking back at man. All right, I haven't made any 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 money. Uh, Not very good at that. But I I know this game politically. And I think I can be successful and still maybe start a firm in a different way, government relations firm, do this and bring a sense of consciousness to the political process. So I can do this from a different angle. I don't have to have it. I don't need it. It's not something I got to sell my soul to do. I can get in it and bring about a different level of of perspective. The other part was, quite frankly, i Gotten frustrated with things that were starting to happen here, that had been happening since I was back. Politically, It just was not enough conversation around building wealth. There was not enough conversation around building and uh, supporting businesses and black entrepreneurship at all in our community. And I was just amazed, like that, you know, in two thousands, people were still talking like they were when we were growing up in the eighties, nineties. It was like, are you kidding me? Nobody's talking about money. There's no conversation around here about capacity for building out this economy and creating jobs in these communities and, and the, the need for black entrepreneurs and, and you know black firms and all this stuff. And so I got in it thinking, all right, well, again, entrepreneurial deal. I'll start my own and I can also advocate in the area that I think I know how to do as well as anyone. Because I've been around it, you know, growing up, I just had still clear of it, but I knew it. It was always there. It just for me, it was not that challenging. To be honest with you, I just I always felt like okay, I could go into politics. That would be easy, not challenging. And I think one of the things where I wanted to go corporate was it was challenging. And to your point earlier about why you went to Howard, you know, I could be my own person. So you know, if I went the corporate route in New York, Chicago, Dallas, wherever, Atlanta. No one's going to care who my parents were. Everybody's just going to, you know, they're going to evaluate me based on my merit. And there was a challenge and there was a a desire to prove that I could be successful in in that way. So the the lobbying side really came as a combination of of all those things that I mentioned in terms of why I started my own firm as opposed to going with someone else and why I got into it itself and for what purposes.
0: You heard Barack Obama give a speech in 2008 when he was a junior freshman senator that changed the way you looked at public service.
1: Yeah. Can he you... was at, uh, he was at Selma for the uh, bridge crossing Jubilee. They went to the annual commemoration of the Selma and Montgomery March and the marchers who were beaten on the Evan Pettus bridge that obviously, uh, Ava DuVernay has done a, a fantastic movie on Selma, you know, kind of telling some of that history, but he was there for that weekend and he was a keynote speaker at Brown Chapel. And then he said, there's a poverty of ambition in doing things just for money. And his next sentence was, there has to be more to what we do and our purpose than just what, how much it will pay us or how much it will reward us financially. And I was sitting kind of dead center. I mean, it seemed like he was looking at me when he said that. And I was like, <laughs> wow, OK. And Juan Williams was next to me as well. And I you know, remember Juan Williams from the eyes on the prize stuff and many of the other things he had done as well. And at the end of the speech, he, he looked and he was like, that's one of the best speeches I think I've heard. I went back thinking about that line. Because I was like, all right, here's his brother who, Harvard Law, obviously could have gone and made a lot of money at a law law firm, investment firm, whatever, bond, underwriter, whatever. He could have taken that route. He didn't. I was kind of thinking to myself, maybe that was a statement that I needed to hear. Mm. Because for the most part, that's what I had been doing things for. Was, again, trying to build this. Wealth, if you will, trying to make money and 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 measuring things by how much money I could make, even if not in the moment, what it could lead me to make, and I wasn't measuring things by you know the impact or the type of difference I could have independent of that, any difference I would have would be because of that and I think that when I heard that, I was like, See, I think you were you know that one was meant for you and I kind of took it as such. And that was just the part that's always stuck out to me about that speech was the poverty of ambition and doing things just for money. And I was like, that's what you've been doing. So you need to have another reason for why you're doing for You need to have another reason to do what you want to do as opposed to just for the financial outcome.
0: At that time, you had enough life experience now to appreciate that speech, and that line specifically. And I'm wondering, how did you process those kinds of pivots? Like, did you have a habit of going to your father's house, maybe on Sundays and having a conversation with him? Or did you talk to, your I don't know if you were married at the time, or you talked to your brother, like who was your sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi at that time in your life, who you would bounce things off of and try to come to a new decision or new direction whenever you decided to switch it up?
1: You know, I think I've got a good circle of friends, uh, mostly college classmates, a couple that that I grew up with here, and then a couple that that I met early in my professional career that have kind of formed a a real good circle, uh, a good sounding board, you know, of, hey, here's something to take a look at. Here's something that you probably ought to steer clear of. Always, you know, been able to give good feedback, objective feedback in a way that you know is appreciated. And I think kind of the combination there and the combination of my father's presence as a person who's been successful without the advantages I grew up with, and been at a very high level in his field, I think kind of helped balance it out. So I I recognize generationally there's some things that he views differently than I do. And I think having a peer group of, of, of friends and, and brothers that I could bounce things off of who are in, in various professions themselves, but are all successful, has been a big part of kind of how I will come to a decision. I may have a, a thought and maybe leaning in a direction, but I'll typically kind of bounce it off a few of those folks.
0: Within your peer group, what's your role? Like if somebody else has an idea, are you the guy that says take the leap of faith? Or are you the guy that says, now nah, just you know do more research? <laughs> what do you contribute to that conversation?
1: I think I'm the the pragmatist, And I think I'm the talent evaluator. And I'll tell somebody whether or not I think they they can do it or whether or not I think this is just kind of a flighty moment for them. Like you're mm-hmm. not serious about that. You ain't ever. you just caught up in the you you caught it, you caught up in the moment right now. Versus, no, okay, that that's that's an abrupt move, but I think I can see you doing that because I think you have the skill set to adapt to that, the personality to do it. You're in a good place, personally, you know, to make this move. And I think I kind of look at things very objectively as well. And I'm not the the, the happy chili all the time, but I am a realist. And if the opportunity is too good or it's one that provides more upside than down, then I'll, I'll say that. And I think that's kind of the role that I play. And I think that what my friends probably would say they appreciate is, I'm not going to just give it to you out of emotion. I'm going to think about it. I'll deliberate on it and give them that feedback. So I okay. think that's one of, one of the spaces that some of them play with where I'm concerned too. Because I feel like a lot of times we already know what we want to
0: do. And then we'll ask the person who we know is going to give us the validation so that we can have that sort of internal approval to go ahead and do it, but I guess this position as probate judge came up in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, you had no idea what that even entailed. You did not have a law degree. Obviously, if someone hears probate judge, the first thing you think is, "I oh, should I need to be a lawyer to do this." Yeah, you had just come off of this business failure, which means you're in mm-hmm. debt. You're in heavy credit card debt. I don't know much about running for office, but I'm assuming you have to go and you've spent a lot of money and potentially go into debt. That's what Barack Obama has said before when I read some of his his books. And you're there's a person running who's who's got a lot of money. Why do you take that risk to run for that office? What were you thinking?
1: Yeah, well, I think then there was a combination of inspiration and and frustration. You know, there was a frustration with our leadership. Politically, across parties, across racial lines, just not moving fast enough and not doing their part for what I thought were very simple solutions. Having then, you know, worked as a senior aide to in lieutenant governor's office, I was able to see a lot in that position. After I lobbied for a little bit, so I lobbied and then I went to into the administration. So I was able to see a lot more there and. I was also able to see a lot of people not doing things that they know they should have done as representatives for their residents and their voters for no reason other than just a lack of political courage. So I saw a lot of that. So I was frustrated by the lack of progress because I was convinced that the progress was not because of any imaginary obstacles or any real obstacles. They were there because of imaginary obstacles. And that was one was just a lack of courage. So when I thought about running, I did talk to my dad about that. He was one of the first people I talked to after my wife. And I said, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think? And I was looking at running for a, a different office and a county commission office. And he said, don't run for county commission. He said, you're gonna run for something, Run for probate judge. He said, "That's he said, you want to make an impact, right? He said, you just want a title. I said, no, I want to make an impact. He said, well, run countywide. You know, I'll support you. I'll help you. And that's where you're going to be able to make an impact. He said, now, if you want to just kind of have an office and have one foot in the pool, so to speak, then you can do this other thing. But if you really want to make a difference, then run for that. And he kind of told me about it being the chief election official, all the things that came along with it as in, in regards to voting and elections. We talked about the administrative part of it. And then we talked about the legal part of the part. You know, in particular dealing with involuntary commitments because those are people that you commit to the state mental institution. Well, and I'd had an uncle who spent for probably three fourths of his life in the state mental institution, probably wrongly at that time. But he was treated like most black men were at, in in the '40s. And if you had some issues, then they just kind of took you away, and you, know, you didn't kind of come back the right way. You know, it's just an old way of doing things. And certainly, with black boys at that time, it was. Not a place that served them very well. So I had a soft spot for people who were suffering from mental illness. I'd gone growing up going to Bright's Hospital with my mom, and I mean, my Uncle David's hands probably as soft as my 10 year old son's now. And he was 60 and 70 years old. He was an A student, one of the smartest people in this class, and you know, gets sick, starts having headaches, and he's taken away and never comes back to the family farm. So that part of the probate judge position really appealed to me because I thought that there needed to be change in our system. And I thought that was a way I could help reform our system. And I thought then that the person that was in the position was a old school Republican who just did not serve the, the citizens and did not meet us where we were. But we had been given a false sense of progress because... You know, he was decent, and I stopped there. He wasn't great and benevolent, but because he wasn't evil or mean, there was this false sense of progression, and it's like, no, this guy is not doing what he what he could be doing at all, and after trying for years to get friends to run for office, I then had a friend who said, well, Steve, you think the political process is so important, why don't you run? And I just said, I just might, and so... It was, all right, if you're going to run, then run for something where you can make an impact and run for something that's going to make a statement. And that's what we did.
0: Were there any things in in the process of running that you did not account for that surprised you as you were going through that process?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, definitely. There's nothing like running for you know public office uh, in this world. You, you want to find out you know how humanity really is. Run for public office, and you see it all, <laughs> you see it all, and hear it all. I think the thing that I mean, I could talk about that. We have a whole podcast. That's a whole other podcast, podcast.
0: right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> but I, I think the thing that I'll summarize is how people mistake mediocrity. For excellence. And it was the fact that this guy didn't have any tangible administrative or political advances that really changed the community in his position. But he had been there for a while. So we came to think that he was good because he was there for a while. So he must be doing very good. He must be great. And it's like, no, he's not great. He is just good enough to be a little bit more than average, but great you would feel, great you would know, great I can summarize in 10, 30 seconds. I can say what this person has done. I don't care if they're a surgeon, they're a teacher, if they're a ditch digger, I don't care what they are, street sweeper. I can, I can describe great very quickly. When I have to think about it and talk in generalities, that that brings you down several levels in my opinion. So what I came to find out with people would say, well, hey, you know, If we get a black probate judge, is that going to make white people leave the county? Is the community ready for a black countywide elected official, which is the probate judge is the highest elected official in in the county? Is the community ready for that? Well, this guy has been okay. He's been all right to us. Why do we need to change? And what's the backlash going to be if we do? So there was a fear in terms of even electing me from black people, some. Here And there was a, a misguided sense of loyalty to him because he just wasn't outright, you know. He wasn't made. Bull
0: Connor. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> you compare him to the devil. Yes, he is better than that. He is better than the <laughs> snake. Yes. But that doesn't mean that he's some benevolent, you know, transformational leader. And I think that because of some of that, we don't get as far as we could as fast as we could. Because there's a sense of being complacent and there's a sense of not over asking, if you will, or, or expecting more of our leadership.
0: I think these parts of the conversation would be really surprising to people outside of the southern culture to hear that we're still considering whether or not a certain race of people would leave a county if a black guy Got elected as a probate judge, and this is 2012, oh. right? So we're not talking about 1960 or something like that. But that is such a big conversation in all circles in that part of the world, and it's still something that we're having to deal with this race issue because I'm sure people have been listening to this conversation. Well, why do they keep talking about black and white? Because a lot of my listeners, you know, are from Europe and Australia, and and people think that we've transcended this whole dynamic, but it's it's still something that is being talked about and discussed and grappled with on a daily basis. And I want to get to that part later on. But yeah. I, I also want to talk a little bit about you finally being elected as the probate judge, even though you were outspent, I think was it 10 to one budget wise? Right, four to one. Four, four to one. one.
1: Yeah. What do
0: you think did that? What do you think put you over the top?
1: I think certainly there was an element of people that were ready and wanted to see some one of their best homegrown you know, sons ascend to that type of position. I think that the election of President Obama changed the mindsets and changed the outlook and expectations for many people in this country in terms of what leadership could be like. I won on those coattails of his that he had I won by 3000 votes in an unprecedented voter turnout in 2012. So I ran on a, on the, the down-ballot race for what everybody else was coming out to vote for president. So I think we had a lot of that. There was a lot of energy around wanting to see a peer, wanting to see a younger leader in position, uh, bringing and doing different things to represent the community. And that just wasn't from you know younger people. There were a lot of elders who wanted to see that, who said, hey, it's time. Because we have to think that, just like we started out the conversation with the bus boycott and all that, Dr. King was 26 years old leading that. I reference back to my father leading the Black Teachers Association after integration, after Brown versus Board of Education ordered that all schools be integrated. He was 26. So I think you had an a element of, of leadership and, and elders who said it's time for young leadership to take us forward and to take us beyond kind of where we are, even in the face of the resistance and the fear of what the backlash could be. And so I think that won out barely, but it won out 51%, 49% at that time because people chose that opportunity. They chose the hope for new leadership over just staying with the status quo that we had had for about 18 years.
0: Was there anything specifically that you did, that you look back and go, thank God I've made that strategic decision, because I think that helped me a lot in winning this election. Kind of like how Obama embraced social media more so than the previous presidential candidates.
1: Certainly, we did that part, but probably for us, we explained the position. I know that sounds, you know, wonkish, to say that maybe that did, but we we talked about why it mattered. So keep in mind, let me go back. This was when the voter ID laws were first being introduced state by state after the Republicans took control of of the Congress in 2010. Mm -hmm. And John Lewis said that the voter ID laws was a 21st century poll tax. So I used that in every remark that I gave. It didn't matter who I was giving it to. Because I said, you know, you honor and you lionized John Lewis for his nonviolent protests and all these things that he led, he's telling you black, white, and indifferent that this this measure to keep people from voting is a 21st century poll tax. And for your listeners who may not know what a poll tax was, that was a way to keep black voters from voting even after legally the, the country had granted them the right to vote. You have to pay a poll tax in order to vote, which many people who were sharecroppers and it, it lived in, I'm about to say indentured service, but sharecroppers and other means did not have the financial ability to pay the vote. It never should have been faced with that. So when John Lewis referenced that, it took, it harkened back to the days after the Voting Rights Act, which he fought for with many others, and led to say this was another obstacle place to keep Black people from voting. And I mentioned that in every remark that I gave, church, school, it didn't matter. And I explained the importance of the position. And what I tried to say is, here's why this matters to you who's in this position. Uh, As DOS effects would say, you can get with this or you can get with (laughs) that. You can get with that.
0: (laughs) Your most controversial decision as probate judge yeah. the one that made national news was when you began issuing same-sex marriage licenses against the direct orders of the Roy Moores of the state. Walk me through your decision-making process. Cause that's a really big decision in a place like Montgomery, Alabama, where people have gotten bombed and all kinds of crazy things happened to them by the state fathers or city fathers and whatnot.
1: Yeah. I think when, when that order came down, uh, the Oberfield decision, it was, it was a great day for the, the nation. It was a great day for the world to see the United States recognize same-sex marriages, like they do, traditional marriages, if you will. And I really didn't expect a lot. I just said, okay, hey, the Supreme Court, right? It's not the Alabama Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court has just issued this ruling. Again, I'm not a lawyer, I but I know the law, so... I know what this means. This means this is now the law of the land. Everybody has to abide by it. Not expected anything whatsoever. Ho-hum, de doo great day. We knew this would happen. Glad that it happened now. Let's start doing it. And then we had this racist backwoods Supreme Court justice, our chief justice of our Supreme Court in the state, that issued an order prohibiting probate judges from doing just what the the law had told us was legal. I mean, I probably read the order countless times. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe that it was right when I when I first heard about it. So when my staff first told me about it. I just I was like, I don't believe that. You guys are wrong on this. Let me see it for myself. And even then, I had to read it a couple of times. So at the time, I was kind of like, what? Well, can he do this? I'm like, he can't do that. You know, that's subverting the federal law. He can't do that. So you kind of go through this, this evaluation of, all right, am I really hearing what I think I'm hearing? Is there a loophole that I'm missing here? And then it was, all right, let me check with all the people that I trust in in the legal sphere. So I called, you know, good, good friend of mine, Greg Graves, and and called uh, my wife and called my brother And called a few other people and called our, some of the attorneys that did a lot of work for me in in the probate court and asked them. And everybody was like, no, this guy's crazy. You can't do that. So then it became, all right, so now once you're sure about the law, then it became, okay, well, what are you going to do? And so you had a lot of my colleagues. So there's a probate judge in every county in Alabama, there's 67 counties, and there's two actually in Jefferson County where Birmingham is. Oh, 68. So on this email thread, and you had these probate judges saying they didn't believe in same-sex marriage, they didn't think it was right, they were a Christian, all this stuff that has nothing to do with the function of your job, right? Then you started having on the tail end of that, those saying, Well, I'm not going to, we're not going to issue those marriage licenses. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has said, the Alabama Supreme Court has said we can't do it. And I'm not going to go against the Chief Justice, and I kind of chime in like Chief Justice going against the United States Supreme Court. I think there's a I think there's a hierarchy here, so I decided that I was going to do it, and I didn't think that I was going to be by myself, and I you know two or three other judges that did it, so it was one of those where I said I don't know if I as much stepped up as everybody else stepped back. <laughs> And there was me and a couple others that, that's, you know, that were there like, yeah, we're going to do it. It's the right thing to do. It's a legal thing to do. And, you know, we're going to do that. And it became this big firestorm. And I think once it became him coming back at me, the media heard what I was doing. And he said something that kind of got under my skin, like I didn't know what I was talking about. And from that, it went from legal to personal. And I, I kind of saw this as a, you know, a George Wallace moment of, all right, you've got a bigot in this position, who's a who's a hick lawyer, never should have been there, as chief justice, and he's kind of setting his sights on this black political leader and trying to insult my intelligence. And at that point, it was all right, you know, look, gloves are off, and we're gonna do what we need to do. So he threatened to had me removed from the courthouse and some other things. And one of our frat brothers is now the sheriff. He's the first black sheriff of Montgomery County. And I called I called Derek and I said, hey, I said, he's saying if we do this, he's gonna remove us from the courthouse. And uh, Derek was like, I wish that MF would. He said, let, let him send anybody down here. He was like, I got you. He was like, you do what you need to do. So it was an interesting, you know, shift of, of power from obviously generations before where the sheriff and the, those judges would have been of a different race and a different ideology that would probably would have gone along with that for us to be able to say no you're not going to do that here and that certainly gave me a, a, another level of confidence to be able to go out and, and call him out for who he was and say everything I wanted to say unfiltered.
0: How did it feel to get that level of attention that national attention And to have everyone looking at your every decision that you were making.
1: It was surprising. The decision was clear cut to me. So I didn't think that it was really anything big. And as I saw more people cower to, you know, this type of bigotry, it it did take me back to some of those lessons that we had heard about growing up. It did take me back to that time. And it was all right. What would those leaders have done? And I, I knew enough of those stories to know what they had faced. And so it was easy for me, I think, to stand resolute in my position and to articulate it. But the attention was surprising. But I also wanted to use the attention that I got to try to change the narrative in the sense of what this Alabama was versus what it was before and how we were going to do things. And so it did give me the opportunity to speak to Montgomery being different and the leadership being different. And although we still have these relics of the past that are out there across the country, that we are going to do things different in the South. And we're going to send a different message about uh, our present and future and being accepting and inclusive of everyone versus what had happened generations before in the 60s, where it was just
0: the opposite. You've said before, you said, don't assume that you need certain qualifications to have certain jobs in government. And after six, seven years as a probate judge, you decided to run for the 57th mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, what was that process like of deciding to run? And what were the different factors that you were weighing?
1: Well, it was a process I dealt with maybe a few years before when people asked, some asked me to run, some people asked me not to run four years prior to that, after I've been in probate judge three years. We gotten a lot of national attention from the same-sex marriage case. I think people, whether they agree with the issue or not, respected my leadership skills and respect to my independence and the ability to make a decision and then articulate it to implementation. And so the process was one of that I think I could be more impactful as mayor than I could be as probate judge and whether Mm. I see a bigger challenge. And I thought that I'd done about as much as I could do as probate judge in relation to bringing more attention and resources to mental illness, trying to reform some of our legal procedures, as well as how we went about trying to make elections fairer and more equal. So in the three areas that i oversaw or saw as the major issues for the probate court, I thought we had achieved quite a bit of those pretty quickly. And by maybe year two or year three, I started to weigh in on different topics in the community that didn't get any traction. And I realized that although I was in a countywide position, that I had limited executive and legislative authority to implement other things that I thought needed to be done to to better the livelihoods for people that live here. And so as I evaluated it, I thought that I could be more effective and more impactful as mayor. And as I heard some of the people who were looking at running, I didn't think any of them were better in any aspect of what it would take to be a great mayor than I was. I thought I was the best person to do it. And I thought I could bring about the most positive change than anyone else that I'd heard that was considering entering the field. And so I talked with Tamika, my wife, and talked with my family about it. And they were very supportive and talked with friends. And, you know, most of them were like, man, that's why we told you to go back to Montgomery in the first place. We've been telling you to do this. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you need to do it. And that was kind of the, the process. And I had grown, again, frustrated with simple solutions that I thought were out there that just lacked political courage. I was like, there's just not enough here, and if I don't do it, then you'll get someone who may sound the part, may look the part, but may not be the part. And that was the missing element that I thought was needed to bring about transformational change.
0: What's interesting, too, is that being the mayor actually pays less money salary-wise than being the probate judge.
1: Yeah, don't remind remind us of that.
0: So you clearly weren't doing it for the money. (laughs) (laughs) But you did. You have spoken in the past about longevity versus production, you know, seniority versus making the impact. And it seems like your motivations are inspirations. What did you bring from your previous race experience, meaning running for the office that you implemented into your mayoral race?
1: Well, I think politically what you realize is you have to listen more and talk less. And I just shared that with a mayor or candidate of a major U.S. city here uh, in the last week, that it's really important that people in elected position not assume they know what people want and that they not assume they know what people need. And you have to ask. And one of the things that I did learn as judge that I talk about now in this capacity as mayor, mayor, you're expected to talk and people want you to share as judge, you're expected to listen you know, the lawyers present the case and they present the evidence and, you know, you only kind of weigh in as a referee. So what I learned to do was to listen a lot more to the people in terms of where their needs were, what their wants are as well. And I think that helped inform our messaging. I think it helped inform our posture from our announcement at a local community center that had, excuse me, all been abandoned all but abandoned in a very forgotten about part of the city that was chosen specifically to bring more attention to this black community that was established in the twenties, that if we were to go there now, people would just think they're in a probably a different country, you know, because of the lack of resources and lack of investment that's been put around it. So my approach to the campaign was to incorporate those things that I'd heard, those things that I'd learned into every facet of how we knocked on doors, how we campaigned via social media, how we use our radio and TV, and then how we went about consolidating support for our race. And it was something that I think certainly I was beneficiary of having run in 2012, and then having to run again unopposed, albeit in 2018.
0: You won, obviously, and you got a lot of media attention for that. And having had some media attention before, and then having it repeated again, being the first Black mayor of the city that's two 200 years old, on, literally on the, anniversary, the 200th anniversary of the year the city was founded, what does that feel like inside? And I'm asking because I know that there can be Big differences in what other people project onto you versus what you feel personally after having achieved something like that?
1: Well, the feeling that I probably wouldn't say is relief. It's one of those, and I've heard athletes say it, I've heard CEOs, entrepreneurs, authors, you know, movie directors. You know, when you see that creation actually up there, you, you may not be as excited as people think you should be because you've done this great work. You are just kind of relieved that it's done that it came out the way you wanted it to come out or maybe close to that. And I think for me, the attention brought a sense of relief that one, the work we had put in was appreciated and absorbed by not you know the only members of the community, but people who were from Montgomery, who had moved away, who had fled. We shouldn't just say moved away, who literally fled Montgomery and fled Alabama in the South for the racial hatred that existed here for so long that fled to other parts of the country. I mean, we got letters from all over the world that I just said this week to my staff, we have not answered all of all of those. And now we're on the one year anniversary that, you know, we want to answer and send some token back to people who wrote us because it was so many letters of people just being excited because of what Montgomery used to represent and what signaled the message the voters of Montgomery chose to send when they elected me. There was a sense of uh, responsibility that I certainly felt in terms of how to manage the media and how to manage the message. And there was a sense of of accomplishment for many people who your family knows and you've come to know and, and many of us for what it said about the city, and I, and I said this in some of the interviews, it should not have taken this long. I mean, obviously, we've had Black mayors of major cities since the early 70s, and certainly even in Alabama, uh, Richard Anton was the first Black mayor in 1979 in Birmingham. We had that, but Montgomery was different because, again, back to an earlier point, it was the place where the Confederacy, the 11 states that seceded from the Union over slavery in 1865, what started. So it it had historical significance there. And I think to have a son of someone like my mom, my dad, who have always been active in racial equality and progress in the state and the country to ascend to the position was even a more unique uh, footnote to this. And so I wanted to make sure that in our response, we didn't talk as much about the past, 200 years as much as we talked about hopefully what the next 200 years will bring and what the election could mean in terms of turning the page for our community as well as those in other communities too
0: yeah and then something else your dad said that i really like and it reminds me of your current position he says a lot of people want to wear the crown (laughs) but hardly anybody wants to bear the cross
1: that's right oh yeah
0: how is that shown up in your current position as mayor, especially having led the city or leading the city through three pandemics, health, economic, social
1: justice? Yeah, you, so that's one of those you asked me a little earlier. That's one of those <laughs> I certainly should have said. I mean, that's dinner time, breakfast time. Oh, there are a lot of crown, there are a lot of crown wearers. <laughs> there are a few cross bearers. I mean, I can hear my dad say that a million times. Yeah, everybody wants to, you know, be there, you know, the Jubilee, but they don't want to they don't want <laughs> to, to work. You know, I can hear all these little phrases or whatever. So I think, you know, leading through these challenges we've had over the last year has really made me appreciate a lot of the stories, a lot of the anecdotal lessons you get in being in a community like Montgomery, the richness, the history, the oral history you're getting when you're in church. You're in that Sunday afternoon program when, man, you want to be out. You want to be anywhere but there. All oh, the folks are talking about this and that, whether mm-hmm. it be scriptural or whether it just be social, you're hearing about these stories of struggle and triumph and challenge. You're hearing about the leadership and you're hearing about all these things. It prepares you. I think it prepares you for circumstances that you don't know that you might face so that when you do, you have a sense of how to react and how to respond. And so I've never felt overwhelmed at all in the last year with any of this. I've always felt very prepared, very confident in what I thought needed to be done and how we could execute it. And I thought that the people would be appreciative of it. And that's not to say that I haven't learned a lot or I haven't researched or any of that. I've done all those things, which goes back to bearing the cross, is that it's a heavy weight. You know, it's it's a sacrifice that you have to make for, quote unquote, The glory of being on MSNBC or CNN or appearing in a national article. You know, one of the things I said to a critic was I said, There are a lot of people these national media outlets can turn to. I said, They turn to people for a reason. Usually that's leadership, usually that's for clarity, and that's for uh, execution and performance. I said, Very rarely are they talking to someone because how they bungle something. So I said, there is a level of preparation that goes into that that you aren't doing it for any attention. You're doing it because that's what you do. So when somebody puts the lens on you, it's just like, well, hey, this is what I do every day. This is just how I go about doing my business because you have to bear the cross and that is a heavy weight to carry. But if you want to wear the crown and not have it knocked off your head or fall off your head, then that's what's necessary in order to prepare for it. And I think that's how we've had to go through these issues that we've had over the last year. But there, there's no one that I think that I would have wanted to be in the positions facing what we face. The social justice piece in particular took a very unique perspective given what happened after George Floyd's killing and how the the streets were responding to that. That to me was even probably more unique than certainly COVID-19 and and the economic fallout that's happened as well.
0: What's your position on the defund the police conversation as a mayor?
1: I'm not for it. I think that we have to reimagine what policing looks like in the country. I think we have Mm -hmm. to take a strong look at the history of policing in the country and go from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. As I've heard Brian Stevenson mentioned before, we have to be truth tellers about policing in this country, why it started, how it started and, and how it evolved. But I don't think that means that you have to get rid of them. I wouldn't be supportive of that, even if someone tried. A lot of people think it's, it's either or. And, and that's the tyranny of the or versus I like to look at the genius of the end. You mm-hmm. know, it can be both and. You can have police, you can have public safety, but you may need a different approach to how we go about doing that. We do that in our military. We do that in many things, uh, daily forms in our lives now, but we just have not pushed for the progress of policing in our communities the way that we have until recently. And I credit the young activists in the Black Lives Matter movement for pushing us in a way faster, impatiently than I think the political system would have ever moved without their activism. And I think that is just a, another point to really highlight where young people have really changed this narrative and pushed us forward in a way that we needed to be pushed.
0: I believe that you guys commissioned a Black Lives Matter sign on Dexter Avenue, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. All right, man. Final question. How are you defining success these days?
1: Very easy. The impact on the lives of others. I realize it, it's not in the salary, it's not in the bonuses or, or any of those things I thought 20 years ago, but it is, you know, how my existence and how my presence impacts others positively. That to me is success.
0: I love it. We come back full circle. Actually, I light, I have one more question. Somebody yeah. comes to you they're from a smaller town, you know, around Montgomery size. They're thinking of running for office. They heard this interview they just ask you what are some of the things i should consider when making that decision what what advice would you have for them
1: i would ask them is it their passion mm. to help people what is their purpose in seeking this office can they remember the people that they will never see or never hear from in the decisions that they make and if they can you know answer those three questions in an affirmative way to me Then I'll say, go do it. Go make it happen. Beautiful.
0: (laughs) All right. So we've made it to the end of the tunnel. (laughs) At the end of these interviews, I'd like to offer a few reflections and I want to bring it back to that electronic football game that you (laughs) talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because a lot of times, man, you know, you hear the whole story and you see connections to that first thing that really excited that really excited the person. And in your case, you know, you actually talked about it, you talked about the, that, that aspect of not being in control and having to rely more on, on your mindset and your coaching. And there's this bit of a competitive nature with it as well. And it's, it's not surprising that you're in a situation right now where there are a lot of things that are happening where you have no control over when it happens or why it happens but you can use your life experience and you know you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur and to have a failed business you know what it's like to work for a big corporation and what they're looking for and their the cities that they're located in you know what it's like to run for office and to work for someone who's really high up in government so it's like your whole life trajectory has really there's there's really no other place you could have landed other than where you are right now, and now you're in this in this leadership position where you're having to deal with all these different figures on this sort of vibrating
1: <laughs> this right. sort
0: of vibrating political mechanism where anything yeah. could happen at any time your guy could fall over at any time, and you have to have that steadiness of of mind in order to lead the people through that so I don't know if that resonates with you, but yeah. that's kind of how I see the whole thing tying together. It yeah and uh, and I'm just I just want to acknowledge you for your leadership, your courage in putting yourself out there like that. That's not an easy thing, you know, putting yourself out there and getting national attention and you could win big, but you could also fail really, really big. I heard Barack Obama talk about the first time he ran for local state government against i forget who he's running against, but the moment the polls closed, they called the race. He couldn't even make it over to his, uh, his party before they wow. called the race for the other guy. So wow. was just talking about how embarrassing it was and how his wife was giving him such a hard time because they were in debt and, mm-hmm. you know, so it was just an uphill battle for him. So I know it's not easy, but you do have a chance to impact a lot of people and the buck, whether you want it to or not stops with you. And that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength and we also have to give a shout out to your wife because being Definitely. married to someone who's in public is also, it seems glamorous, but I'm sure there are a lot of aspects to it that are very challenging. Yeah. And she's, uh, she's been there with you guys.
1: Yeah, Tamika Reed. Uh,
0: Tamika Reed. And you've got a family, you've got two sons, you've got a stepdaughter. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you guys are doing it down there, man. You're inspiring a lot of people. So thank you for that.
1: Man, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come talk with you always good to, to catch up. And it's funny, we ought to just, just link up more and, and, and stay in touch because I wouldn't have sat down for, for this long on a Saturday to catch up. So so this this has taught me something too. I'm just going to reach out to you and just see what's going on on your end, man. But I appreciate what you're doing and the inspiration that you are for a lot of people as well. And uh, I think it's important that, you know, we, we find our passion, we find our niche and we do all we can and try to help people beyond ourselves. And we all have a different calling and a way to do that in unique ways. I, I may not be able to do what you, I know I can do what you do. I mean, I think that that's special. And, you know, I think there's some others who might say, well, Steve, I don't know if I could do what, what you do either, but we all have different ways we can make it work. That, that's important, man. So always good and, and really appreciate you and your friendship, your family, your brothers, all you guys, man. So much love. Thank you, brother. Thank you for
0: listening to my conversation with Mayor Reed. You can follow him on social media at Stephen Lewis Reed. And I hope his story inspires you to put your hat in the ring and run for office, especially if you feel called to make a change in politics from the inside out. And if you haven't done your good deed for the day, I want to give you an opportunity to do so. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, take a look down at your screen and click at the end of the tunnel which is in purple and scroll down past all of the episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and tap the star on the far right if you did all that you just submitted a five star review for this podcast which means more people are now going to be able to discover this conversation and if you have a few more seconds go ahead and click the link that says write a review and just leave a really quick brief one-line review Light is amazing. I love this podcast, right? Whatever's on your heart. If you can do that for me, together we can spread these stories and help to inspire more people. I've done my part in producing that podcast, and I thank you in advance for taking just a few extra seconds to help me publicize them. This is truly a team effort, as I've said before. You'll find the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Mayor Reed at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. There, you may also see a pop-up link to sign up for my Daily Dose of Inspiration email. If you're not getting those, it's a short, sweet, daily motivational message that I send out every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. It's also turned into a book now called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which will be out in May of 2021. So look out for that. Thanks again for taking time to listen to this podcast and for sharing the interview with your friends and followers. Always tag me, At Light Watkins, so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.